is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Nation Tsunami podcast. This weekend, we are offering six conversations from our two-day coverage of the Liver Meeting 2022 and, instead of the vault, an interview with Inventiva Pharmaceuticals Chief Medical Officer Michael Corman and Stephen Harris. Bjorn Schottenberg starts this conversation by introducing a paper titled The Effect of a Dual Receptor Glucagon-like Peptide 1 and Glucagon Agonist Catatide on Serometabolomes in Biopsy-Proven Non-Serotic NASH Patients. You might have noticed a lot of these titles are really a mouthful. He describes Catatide, the agent in question, and then the study design that added metabolomic analyses to more standard liver NITs. His point is that metabolomic assessments provide helpful new measures and metrics that drug developers might consider adding to their clinical trials. Scott Friedman then takes the entire conversation in a different direction, noting that while our community is liver-centric, fatty liver disease is complex, and some of these therapies can affect other organs, particularly muscle and adipose tissues and the pancreas. From there, Scott, Yorn, and Rachel Zayas expand on the complexity of the disease and the different goals of therapies. This leads to a consideration of methods and the idea that the role of biopsy is waning and will continue to wane, and that, as Scott puts it, gene therapy is here to stay. I follow his comment up with the idea that there's considerable value in the approach of finding a solution, fixing the problem, and then figuring out what happened. Same point I made earlier. There's a lot more to this conversation. I'm just going to stop talking and let you listen to it. Enjoy. With over 7,000 on-site attendees and tremendous amounts of positive energy, Delivery Meeting 22 produced exciting presentations, fantastic debates, and searing insights. So sit back, listen, enjoy, learn, catch everything in this series from us. And when you're done, join the discussion on our LinkedIn discussion group. Jörn Schattenberg. Yeah, so uh, the paper I want to discuss is entitled The Effect of a Dual Receptor Glucagon-like Peptide 1 and Glucagon Agonist Cotatatide on Serum Metabolomes in Biopsy-Proven Non-Serotic NASH Patients. So uh, that was presented in parallel 12 yesterday till uh, 3.30 session Sunday afternoon. As most of the listeners might be aware, Cotatatide is a dual GLP-1 glucagon agonist. The nice thing of that MOA is it adds the backbone of weight loss, which is highly effective in treating obesity and diabetes, but it also has a component that actually has a liver-directed effect, the glucagon agonism. And those play together well. Catetatide is explored in obesity and also NASH. And data that's presented here is a breakdown of the Proximo study, which is a 90-week multi-center phase 2 trial, 74 patients biopsy-confirmed NASH. And the authors present metabolomics. Metabolomics were done at baseline in week 19, and they used um, the OWL metabolomics uh, platform to different readouts. And I think it's one nice way to address the aspect of where tied to histology for conditional approval of a drug. We're tied to hard outcomes for definite approval of a heart drug and of a drug in NASH at this time. But there are so many ways to understand what the drug might be doing, demonstrate benefits in terms of secondary outcomes and pathophysiological plausibility. And as such, I think these programs that augment a clinical trial program beyond the decision, you know, we're going to continue this or not based on the primary readout. Um, this is very interesting. And, and metabolomics are, of course, very powerful powerful. I'm, I'm sure Rachel and Scott have some thoughts to that, but let me just detail the results quickly. So they have a lot of metabolic features they looked at and then um, dissect metabolites that are associated with NAS sphingolipids read out here and catetatide was applied in two doses. In the high dose group, there were uh, significantly more suppressed over placebo and branch chain amino acids as well as leucine were aspects they were looking at. So using very powerful techniques like metabolomics, you can actually detect serum metabolomic profiles that do 
correlate with drug response. Now, that doesn't have necessarily to say anything for the primary endpoint of the outcome, but it shows us how the drugs, even beyond the primary liver endpoint, uh, read out and might be beneficial for the patient. And as such, I do encourage you, if you're in drug development, to add in these programs and, and help the field to understand what's going on. Scott Friedman. It's a very interesting and a lovely description. I, I guess the other complexity we haven't talked about yet is how these drugs affect other organs that contribute to the metabolic syndrome. So we're obviously very liver-centric, but we all recognize this is a systemic disease. So that means disordered biology in muscle, in adipose, heart, kidneys. Uh, as I think about these combination therapies, I'm also thinking about how the benefit may accrue from effects outside the liver, particularly adipose and muscle. Uh, so those are things to think about. Of course, you know, when you're a hammer, the whole world's a nail. So we worry about the liver, but the endocrinologists worry about the muscle and the adipose and, the, of course, the pancreas, which, let's not forget, <laughs> is the master of glucose management. Rachel Zayas. Yeah, I was going to add to that from a, I guess, from a pessimistic point of view. You know, for if we're developing new therapeutics, if we're utilizing small interference RNA, if we are silencing a gene in the liver, it might be critical to have the expression of, of, of that gene in another organ in the body. So it's something important from that perspective to ensure that there's not off-target effects. But this comment can go both ways. Of course, off-target effects are critical, but then the, on the other end of that spectrum is what is going on in the other organs in the body. And I haven't seen that too often, but um, I think that that is a critical question going forward, especially with gene editing technologies as well as the drugs in development. Well, that, that's a great point. I think one of the themes that's sort of almost below the radar here is that gene therapy has arrived for real. And it turns out that's a boon not just to patients, but also to liver specialists, because if you don't do very much to tweak a delivery vehicle to get genes into the body, they almost always go to the liver. So, you know, there are some real success stories here for monogenic diseases like alpha-1 antitrypsin. There was a very exciting paper that suggests that that can be managed with an siRNA, but more even to the point is one of the porphyrias as well as blocking on the other monogenic disease that, that is amenable to gene therapy. And, you know, there was a catastrophic situation probably over 10 or 15 years ago of a young man who died in a gene therapy human trial because the viral carrier was eliciting a massive inflammation and the, the young man died and that both stalled and sobered the field for a very long time. But slowly but surely, the field has come back in a much more nuanced and I would say clever way. One of the big stories to me actually comes out of the COVID-19 pandemic and the development of lipid nanoparticle carriers. So if you think about it, the mRNA vaccines are gene therapy. Of course, the companies that make them don't want to remind us of that because that elicits a lot of anxiety on the part of most, I guess, patients and maybe regulators. But the fact is, those lipid nanoparticles now have been very finely tuned. There's a tremendous amount of biochemistry and pharmacology that's gone into refining these so they can get to the tissue you want them to get to, they can deliver their payload. And in the case of the COVID-19 vaccine, they can also encode for proteins that will elicit an immune response that protects us. So that's really been an under-the-radar success story now after years of trying and and of course, caution. Those gene therapies have arrived for some liver disease. And of course, to circle back to the HST17B13 story that we brought up before, if we want to neutralize that, there is one company that's now got an siRNA delivered to knock down that gene so that patients who have the 
risk polymorphism, their expression is reduced to mimic those who are naturally protected because they don't express the protein. So another off the main road success story of gene therapy, which I think will slowly but surely creep into management of more complex and prevalent diseases like fatty liver disease and NASH. So I'm intrigued by your use of the verb creep in, right? We've talked about four or five different ways this morning that knowledge can be enhanced. And it strikes me all of those fit into the category of creep in, right? Fix it and figure it all the way from the one extreme, fix it and then figure out what you did to what you described, Scott, which is very, very fine tuning at what looked like the edges, but might actually get you to the core pretty quickly. It's a funny thing. I felt a little bit in this meeting that like we are becoming increasingly spoiled for choice. It's not clear that we know yet what the answer is, capital T, capital A, which frustrates commercial folks, but that there are lots of directions where you can find pieces of the answer. So far in just probably 35 or 36 minutes of tape, which will be 28 minutes by the time anybody hears this, we've done a pretty good job of elucidating five or six different ways of getting there. Thoughts, comments? Yeah. You know, patients, providers, and certainly in Investors and pharma and biotech companies want a big story, a big win, a front page headline, disease cured. And that's certainly great when it happens. But there's going to be a lot of singles and not many home runs in NASH, I think. Uh, and we're, we're learning that the hard way. We need to recondition ourselves to expect small steps and, and not a blockbuster. I hope I'm wrong, but you might be right. But let me go back to the metaphor of men, NASH and cancer that I talk about from time to time. Because, right, if you remember back in 1969, Nixon declared there was going to be a cure for cancer, capital C for cure, capital C for cancer, right? And what might look like a single in NASH might look like a home run in cancer because you define one particular type and then you knock mortality way down and you, you declare that a home run. In NASH, because it's not mortal in the same sense, with the same kind of direct effect, it's going to wind up looking like a single. But it took 50 years to start to come back to things like microsatellite stability and some of the other things that, that appear to run across cancer lines. After we had to break everything down into very small component parts, and then we could take a look and say, okay, what are the common themes here? My suspicion is that NASH will wind up looking like that because dynamically it to me, at least, it feels like the same thing. Every time you think you have a big answer, it turns out it's just not quite that, but the small pieces work better. Or for a subset of patients, yeah. yeah so it doesn't, it's not one cure fits all. Yeah, which means, going back to your previous comment, that liver scientists will have a lot of work to do for a long time, which is a good thing. Everybody comes to hepatology. All right, so I went to uh, session 12 yesterday wanting to see four papers, and the one that struck me the most was one of the two that, from the description, the word description didn't do it, I thought didn't do it justice, which was Emmerich Shaw's rather compelling takedown of biopsy from a direction I've never seen anybody take biopsy down before. That could be because I'm new here. But we talk a lot about the statistics of different sample sizes, right? And if you think about all the conversations about FIB4, it's all about what does NPV mean in a population that's 2080 versus a population that's 50-50. I thought Dr. Shaw's paper yesterday was a pretty compelling look at the idea that by its nature, if you look for a two-point discrete distribution to determine success, that you will systematically underplay the value of the therapy that's improving things because the statistics are going to force all the error in the same direction. And what I thought was neat about it, you guys who know this field a lot better could have a completely different view and I could be way out to lunch, in which case we'll play that and I will confess to naivete. But the idea that goes, by definition, if you improve response, all the systematic error is going to overplay the value of placebo and underplay the value of response. Therefore, it becomes one more piece of the argument or the question that goes why we shouldn't be looking at ballooning, for example, as a yes or no, as compared to a distribution of space involved, because the statistics have to become the sophistication of what you can measure and the error 
and the statistics have to align. And I did not expect that paper from, from what I could see in the abstract. And I don't have the abstract up in front of me right now because I've got to have the screen in front of me. I will post it when we post the article. But I thought it was a really compelling look at why it virtually has to be that you can understate the value of efficacy in a bimodal distribution, which makes biopsy a problem. So is this the emperor has no clothes? Yes. Very uh, provocative. And, you know, I'll tag along and make a sub point, which is it is increasingly irrational to rely solely on the subjective assessment of a liver biopsy by a pathologist with all due respect to pathologists. It is just nonsensical. Now, the FDA is not averse to embracing digital pathologies, but they want to see the data, and that's only fair. And that data is coming along. You know, there's a paper that came out earlier and two abstracts that were presented here with different drugs that suggest that if you look at drugs that purportedly have no effect when assessed by a pathologist and you take an objective, quantifiable assessment of the amount of fibrosis, the amount of inflammation, the subtle features that can be quantified objectively, that in fact there was a therapeutic benefit. Uh, the paper, there was one paper from Nikolai Naumov that just published in Hepatology, I think in the last month or two, looking at the trophoffexor data, which was an FXR agonist that purportedly failed. But yet there was clear evidence that there was improvement. Uh, we have got to get these digital pathologies into the mainstream as endpoints in clinical trials and not a moment too soon because we're probably, in addition to for the reasons you stated, Roger, we're probably discarding drugs that clearly have a benefit, but that may take more time to uh, reveal. Okay, so the thing I'm probably most fascinated to see of everything today is going to be Arun Sanyal's redefinition of the uh, Regenerate data in Late Breaker, because I have a sense that we might wind up seeing something like what you just described played out in real time. And if you talk about OKA, you're talking about a very different situation than everything else, right? I don't think the Regenerate data is going to include digital pathology, but it will include a reassessment with three pathologists. Poor Intercept, I have no formal relationship to them, but, you know, they have been at the point of the spear and taken all the hits for the field time and time again. And yet now, you know, they've gone to great lengths to adjudicate all the biopsies and to try to minimize the inter-observer variability, all of which, in my view, could be replaced by digital pathology that measures it once, measures it the same every time, and doesn't rely on keeping pathologists employed. And Scott, I obviously, I believe that, that we all do, but I, I thought the Shaw paper was a little different, which is if, in fact, you're still using a discrete yes, no, zero, one variable. You're gonna, it doesn't even matter. I mean, I thought one of the points on Q&A was that AI doesn't solve that problem. It solves a lot of problems. It doesn't solve that Well, it, it's a continuous variable, the percent collagen. Somebody made it a point to me that if a biopsy went from, let's say, F3.9 to 3.1, that would be no change. So now we're, now we're going back to all the discussions about ballooning, right? I mean, this is Quentin Nancy's point on ballooning, which is if ballooning is a discrete variable, you got a problem. But if it's percentage of space taken by ballooning, then in fact, digital pathology can come in and measure it and clean it up and you become a lot more statistically reliable at the same time you become more accurate. Yeah, Jorn and I actually saw some data in an offline presentation that supported that possibility. The ballooning is even more imprecise because obviously it's more difficult to grab. I think fibrosis is the most robust marker and readout we can get from liver biopsy. There's inherent uh, sample invariability and so I'm with Scott saying you can augment that. I mean, to extend the discussion of saying we're discarding drugs, we have to start to consider if we really want to expose patients to a painful, invasive procedure, doesn't carry a high mortality risk, but patients have succumbed to liver biopsy, or at least in the follow-up, is this still the right test? The discussion is ongoing, and it's beyond this podcast, but it's something to consider. You know, we're generating data to say what we're doing here is a troublesome road. I, uh, for, for what it's worth, as you, as you well know, hepatologists don't like biopsies very much either. And so in the U.S., at least, I don't know about Europe, increasingly they're, they're being sent to radiologists for a variety of reasons. So in, in, a, in a product theater I happened to catch yesterday because um, I needed to catch up with both Stephen and Naeem, who were the two people doing the product theater. Stephen, talk 
talked about how much biopsy he used to have his residents do, and he just doesn't do that anymore. Fundamentally, it's not anything we need to do. So you're, I, I think you're right. I mean, this is one of these places where to do the humane thing and to do the scientifically accurate thing are headed in the same direction. Now, how fast we're going to get there is a different question. Well, uh, you know, it's not the major indicator, but nonetheless, the certification, the licensing board here in the U.S. is no longer requiring liver biopsy as part of gastroenterology training and even liver training. So, you know, the people are voting with their feet, whether someone wants to cling to biopsy or not. It's just, it's only a matter of a generation. There won't be anyone around who knows how to do it. And then, then you got to figure out how quickly you can bring the regulators along with us, right? Because if they lag by 10 years, that's a problem. And now back to Roger. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We'll be back next Wednesday evening with a wrap-up episode, taking a look at some of the highlights of the meeting from the perspective of folks we may not have heard from yet, including Will Alazawi, who's been with us once, and Moran Costera, who's never been with us before. It's going to be a fantastic session. Till then, stay safe, surf hot. Look forward to seeing you again next week on the podcast. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye.